Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Lori Boschman. Lori played 14 seasons in over 1,000 National Hockey League games as a centerman for five teams, including your Toronto Maple Leafs. He also spent time with the Edmonton Oilers, the Winnipeg Jets, the New Jersey Devils, and served as team captain for the Ottawa Senators during their inaugural 1992-93 season. Lori is a born-again Christian with a long-standing involvement in Hockey Ministries International, and this, for better or for worse, is a big part of the story of his time playing under bombastic former Maple Leafs owner Harold Ballard here in the center of the universe. Welcome, Lori, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Well, I'm fine, Andrew. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I, I live in uh, in Ottawa. We live in uh, South Ottawa. We've been here for 30, 31 years. And uh, we've uh, we just uh, enjoyed our time uh, here in Ottawa. Of course, uh, Ottawa was the last team I played for, so we just decided to uh, stay here. And so uh, we've been here for 31 years and raised our kids, and uh, and we've got uh, we've got a, a whole bunch of uh, kids and grandkids. So uh, we'll soon have uh, 11 in uh, in May. We'll have 11 grandkids. So uh, so Ottawa's home, and uh, we 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 love uh, it here in this community. Well, congratulations to you, Laurie. That's great. You gotta, it's going to keep you young and keep you busy, which is the best. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's jump right into your current day excitement. As part of the NHL's upcoming All-Star Weekend in Toronto, your organization, Hockey Ministries International, will be hosting its All-Star Breakfast on Saturday, February 3rd at the historic Fairmount Royal York Hotel. Featured guests include not only you, but your fellow ex-Maple Leafs, Mike Gardner, and Summit Series hero, Paul Henderson, as well as John Van Beesbrook, fresh off his gold medal win as GM of the American squad at the World Junior Championships. In this episode's show notes, there is a link to the full event info. But Lori, please share with us the purpose of the All-Star Breakfast. Well, Andrew, we've had, um, we've had this breakfast in conjunction with the NHL All-Star game for, I believe it's about 19 years now. And what we try and do is we always try and... Um, we always try and uh, uh, feature some of the uh, Christian athletes uh, who have played in the sport of hockey and who currently play. And sometimes we're fortunate to get uh, uh, current NHLers. And we always have a, a mix of, or we try to have a mix of current and former NHL players. And so uh, we've got Paul Henderson, and Mike Gartner, and John Van Beesbrook and and uh, and the like. So uh, we've got a, a real stellar lineup and our breakfast is on uh, Saturday morning. At uh, as you mentioned, Andrew, at the Fairmont Royal York on February the third, and it's from eight to ten a.m. So it, it's just a great time for people during the All Star to hear stories, you know, from the game from players who uh, who have played at, at at the highest level at the NHL level, and and a little bit about their opportunity to talk about their faith in Christ and what that looks like, and uh, how that's been incorporated through their years in hockey. And then just what they're doing and how that's uh, how that works for them today. What is Hockey Ministries International, and what is your role within the organization? Well, Hockey Ministries International is an organization that's been around for I think it's forty-seven years. It is a, a Christian not-for-profit organization that communicates uh, Bible-based principles to boys and girls through hockey camps and through our chapel program. So our hockey camps. We're in six countries now. We're in Canada, U.S., Sweden, Switzerland, Czech, Slovakia, 
boys and girls age 9 through 17 years old. So we, of course, talk about, uh, you know, passing, shooting, skating, puck handling, all those, uh, uh, the basic skills of hockey. And, and we have a variety of current and former NHL players that help us facilitate that program. But in our programs, we always incorporate Bible-based principles. And, and we talk about uh, what the Bible has to say about how we can conduct our lives and how we should live and, and, and various things like that. So we have, you know, numerous uh, individuals from, you know, Billy Butters and Mark Osborne, David Booth, Eric Fair, Alex Globke, Rob Globke, Luke Lindenning, various players right across, uh, you know, the, the hockey landscape that help us facilitate this program. And then Hockey Ministries also conducts uh, chapel programs. And chapel programs, Andrew, are non-denominational programs at the junior levels all the way up to the NHL uh, level. And we have about 400 teams in about 30 different leagues that we conduct these programs at, right from NHL, American Hockey League, Western Hockey League, Quebec League, Saskatchewan Junior League, all that kind of stuff. And they're volunteer programs. We find that there's a lot of traction between players. There's a interest in uh, faith-based topics. And so we get a variety of players that come to uh, these chapel programs right across the hockey landscape. And of course, I, I, I provide a, ho- or a hockey chapel here in Ottawa for the Senators and have for, for 25 years. Well, you clearly have your finger on the pulse of things. So I want to ask, Laurie, how prevalent is faith-based living amongst current professional hockey players? Well, I think there's, uh, I, I think in our culture today, Andrew, there's a lot of questions uh, about uh, a variety of things. And so uh, we've noticed a, a steady increase in the number of players that, uh, that will come to our chapel programs, our non-denominational volunteer chapel programs. And so just by virtue of numbers, we notice that there's, you know, quite an interest in the service that Hockey Ministries provides across the hockey landscape. And, and it's been, uh, you know, widely accepted throughout, uh, uh, you know, hockey now for, for many, many years. The fact that you use the term non-denominational may already have answered this question, but I want to ask, do you encourage faith-based living only for your particular faith of Christianity, or do you encourage it regardless of the particular faith being followed? Yeah, of course, we, we talk about it doesn't matter if you're non-religious, uh, so to speak, and you come to these chapel programs or you have a, you know, you might be Catholic, you might be Protestant, or like I say, you may have no religious affiliation, but there's some interest in some things of life. I mean, uh, hockey players are like all of us in general population. We, you know, we might have girlfriends, we might have wives, we might have children, and we wonder when we hear of things happening or whatever in, in the world today, you know, does God care you know, why is, uh, why is, why does this happen? Uh, you know, does the Bible speak to that? Uh, does that make any sense? And, and so we get to unpackage some of these things, but from a Bible-based perspective. So if somebody is, you know, of a Catholic faith, we don't talk about things from a perspective of a Catholic background. Uh, we talk about what the Bible has to say, and then we try and encourage the players to look in that direction. Lori, let's please go all the way back and get the Lori Boschman story. You are a true son of Western Canada. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Yeah, I was born in uh, Crawford, Saskatchewan. My folks were living in a, in a town called Major, which is about six miles from the Alberta border. It's about, uh, Crawford is about an hour and a half to two hours west of Saskatoon. And uh, that's where I was born. We lived there till. I was uh, about uh, three years old. We moved to another smaller community, Bengoff, Saskatchewan. And that's really where I started playing hockey. Uh, you know, as a kid growing up in Saskatchewan, there's uh, obviously the weather is conducive to it. There's a lot of sloughs. There's places to play hockey. And in the town of Bengoff is where I really started as a six-year-old. I started playing net. And uh, then I got out of, out of net quickly and, and, and got to be a forward and, and then sort of continued on as a you know, as a forward throughout my career, I was a center iceman. But uh, when my parents moved from Saskatchewan to Brandon, Manitoba, that's where I, uh, I really got more involved in, in hockey, you know, at that at that particular time. And of course, coming from a family, there was five of us, uh, you know, five siblings, uh, myself and four others. And so we were quite active. And, you know, back then, of course, TV wasn't uh, as big of a thing and all that kind of stuff. And we were out playing, doing all kinds of things. So I did all kinds of sports. 
and uh, hockey was just one of them and turned out to be my favorite sport and a, and a sport that I was fortunate enough to excel at. Well, you starred for the Brandon Wheat Kings as you led them to a Western Hockey League title in the 1978-79 season. And then you were drafted ninth overall by our Toronto Maple Leafs in 1979. Now, this was the year the upstart WHA or World Hockey Association imploded. So the draft was different than usual. You were actually underage and training with the Canadian Olympic Hockey Program at the time, and there was no in-person draft to attend. So, Laurie, how did you even find out that you had been drafted? Well, what had happened, uh, as you described, Andrew, uh, I went with the Brad of Kings. We went to the Memorial Cup that year in 1979 in, uh, in Laval, Quebec, and we lost 2-1 two, two in overtime to Peterborough Peets. And so I went back to Brandon uh, after that, and I, I heard from my agent, who was Alan Eagleson at the time, that uh, that Canada was getting ready, like all the other hockey-playing countries, they were getting ready, they were holding training camps, getting ready for the uh, Lake Placid Olympics that were going to take place in 1980. And of course, that's the one in which uh, the Americans won. And so Al asked me, he said I had an invitation to come to training camp and uh, that it would be a good idea to do. So I went to training camp in, in Calgary and uh, there was, uh, you know, of course, all, all the individuals who were trying out for the, for the hockey team, Jim Nill, Glenn Anderson, Paul Reinhardt, uh, these various players. Uh, of course, uh, many of them you'd recognize because they had uh, NHL careers. And while we were there mentioning that uh, the draft was going to be held, and that was, uh, it was because of, of the World Hockey Association uh, disbanding and, and four teams joining the NHL, they were going to have that year just a conference call, and it was a six-round conference call. So we were doing two-a-days at a time in, in Calgary, and the uh, the people from uh, Hockey Canada there said uh, uh, that Paul Reinhardt and I could have the morning off because the draft, uh, whatever day that was, the draft was. So we went downstairs in the uh, in the hockey rink of the old Calgary Corral, and we there was a phone there and a rep from Hockey Canada, and we just kind of waited around. And then the deal was is when the phone rang, they were going to pass it to whoever got drafted first because we were told that both Paul and myself were probably going to get drafted in the first round. So phone rang, and the rep answered the phone and passed it to me. And, and then the first voice I heard was Harold Ballard, and, and Mr. Ballard said that, uh, Laurie, you've been drafted by you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then I talked to King Clancy and Floyd Smith. And, and, uh, and, you know, so then it was very surreal, you know, for that to take place. But uh, again, just, I was absolutely thrilled uh, to be drafted by the Leafs uh, at that time as a youngster growing up. Uh, I was a Boston Bruin fan. I mean, Bobby Orfel, Esposito, Wayne Cashman, uh, Hodge. Uh, I mean, those were my favorite players, but, you know, as a kid, we watched Toronto Maple Leafs and Montreal Canadiens, you know, on Saturday night, uh, you know, on Hockey Night in Canada. So I knew who all the Leaf players were, and I was just absolutely thrilled, Andrew. As you know, drafted number nine, but Boston Bruins were your favorite. <laughs> Did you ever let Bruins GM Harry Sinden know that the Bruins could have drafted you at number eight? <laughs> I can't imagine who they would have taken instead. Yeah, well, all that I know, Andrew, is that Harry Sinden was glad he took Ray Bork instead of Laurie Boschman. That's what I can tell you for sure. <laughs> that That's very interesting. That uh, 79, that draft year was a pretty uh, pretty stellar draft year when you look down on the list and the number of players that uh, whose names you'd recognize, and some of them had uh, you know, fairly long NHL careers, and of course, Ray Bork is a Hall of Famer, and, and there's a number of Hall of Famers, uh, I think, in that 79 draft, along with Mike Gartner as well. Absolutely. And another interesting 1979 draft act was that the number one overall pick that year was Rob Ramage, who eventually did a stint as captain of our Maple Leafs. So, Laurie, you've been drafted by the Maple Leafs, and I can barely imagine how surreal it must have been at 19 years of age to then attend training camp with Daryl Sittler, Boreas Salmon, John Anderson, Lanny McDonald, Tiger Williams, Mike Palmatier, and even Rocky Saginaw. Your head must have been spinning. Yeah, it, it was it was a, a dream come true, of course, Andrew, you know, to get drafted, first of all, and then getting drafted is the first piece, because after you get drafted, well, then you've got to try and make the hockey club and so you know just going there I was in absolute awe going there uh, 
you know, one of the first things I remember is we stayed at the old Westbury Hotel, which was really close to the old Maple Leaf Gardens. And, and they had the World Wrestling Fed- Federation in. So I'm just a kid, you know, 19 years old, and I'm checking into the Westbury. I flew into Toronto. They picked me up. I, I, I go down to the Westbury Hotel, and I see the biggest man in my life is checking in ahead of me, and it's Andre the Giant. And I had no idea, like I didn't watch wrestling or anything like that. This was the biggest man I'd ever seen. And I was just, you know, wondering, because all all of us were checking in for training camp and I was thinking, oh my goodness, this kid can't be, like this guy can't be like, you know, a defenseman or something. He's going to kill me. Like this was a massive human being. And so I'll never forget that. But of course, once I got Andrew, once I got on the ice and to see those players you had mentioned, Salming, Ellis, uh, you know, Lanny McDonald, Tiger Williams, who I watched as a kid growing up. Well, first of all, I went to a rookie camp and they weren't at it. And then once I, once I sort of passed from rookie camp to the main camp is, is when I got a chance to skate on the ice with those guys. And, you know, what really made me feel comfortable was the fact that uh, Daryl Settler came up to me and he introduced himself. <laughs> he took off his hockey glove and introduced himself and kind of like, yeah, I don't know where you are, Mr. Settler. And we had the same agent. And I think uh, Al Eagleson probably said to him, you know, hey, look, uh, your first rounder, go say hi to him and stuff like that. Anyway, she came up to me and said, Glory, um, Daryl Settler here, he said, just uh, play the game you played in Brandon, and that's why they drafted you in the first round, and, and you'll be all right. And that just kind of made me feel a little comfortable. I was still in absolute awe of these guys, but um, but it just made me feel a little bit more comfortable. I, I felt like I didn't belong for uh, a couple of days of training camp because it was so fast. The pace was so fast. It was different than what I was used to. And, and then it's amazing how quickly you adapt and adjust. And, and then all of a sudden, there's a thought in your mind that says, maybe, just maybe I can play at this level. And uh, of, of course, at the end of my three-week training camp, they said, Laurie, you know, Floyd Smith took me aside. He was my first NHL coach. And he took me aside and he said, Laurie, uh, get a place. And, uh, so I, I did, and myself and, and Joel Quindle got a place in uh, Mississauga and, and we were, uh, you know, teammates and roommates that first year. You were living the dream, every kid's dream, every Toronto kid's dream for sure. Now, Lori, do you remember your very first NHL game? Boy, you know what, Andrew? I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I can't remember which, what exact. Uh, what team I'd, I'd have to kind of look back to, to see who that was. It was kind of like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was against Montreal or whatever, but I'd have to look in, in, in 1979 that uh, whatever September, October, uh, who that was. I don't exactly remember, but I remember, uh, you know, when they told me to, to go get a place and, and that I could, you know, that I was going to stick in the NHL because they said they could have sent me back to the minors I, I was just absolutely thrilled. And so, uh, you know, but that whole first year, I remember Andrew playing, you know, in the Montreal Forum and the Boston Garden, Chicago Stadium, those kinds of things. You know, I'll never forget, the, uh, you know, just those kinds of things. And of course, like my first goal, I do remember. Unfortunately, just as you asked that question, I'm just kind of racking my brain and saying, you know, you think you'd remember that, like that would stand out. That would be something that is etched in your mind. But I don't remember if it was at, you know, Maple Leaf Gardens or if it was on the road. But uh, but I, I do remember much of that first year, and it was just, uh, it was amazing. Well, I'm going to give you a pass, Laurie, because when you play over a 1,000 games, they all start to blur. But I am going to follow <laughs> up by asking yeah. you to share your memories of playing at Maple Leaf Gardens. As you probably know, the building still stands on Carlton mm-hmm. Street, but is today a Loblaws supermarket. Although it does have a rink, surprisingly, it's actually on the third floor. Well, and I've been, I've been to the rink, uh, or I've been to uh, Loblaws, and they do have a dot there where the center ice is uh, it, it, in the, uh, you know, it's a, in one of the aisles, which is really interesting. And, and of course, I played where Ryerson does in the old Maple Leaf up, and they've got the, you know, the ceiling and stuff for those in Toronto who, who've been there understand that. And that's pretty cool. It's very neat. Well, what I remember, it's iconic, right? You know, like uh, Foster Hewitt and Danny Gallivan in in, in Montreal, and, and just uh, those kinds of uh, individuals that are involved with uh, you know the sport of hockey. You know, I, I re- remember looking up, and I remember in the in the golds, which is the lower bowl, that a lot of people were dressed up, 
you know, so it was uh, my understanding that they would come from work, uh, you know, in the downtown area. And, uh, you know, so you'd see people in suits and, and women dressed up very nicely and stuff. So I re- remembered that quite a bit. And, and just the atmosphere and, and the, the iconic announcer, just the, I, I don't know what his name was, but he was the announcer for, I, I played three years in Toronto, but he was there for many, many years. Paul Morris. Is, is that who it was? But just, you know, his voice, right? Uh, that's something you, announcing goals, announcing penalties and all that kind of stuff in the building are, are things I remember. And of course, uh, you know, Harold Ballard and King Clancy and their box in the corner of Maple Leaf Gardens is iconic. And, you know, it's something Ballard lived upstairs in the arena. And, you know, you'd see him at practice, not every day, but often. Uh, he would just kind of go out of his apartment. And, and you know, I remember the fedora that... Uh, you know, punch him like work because he was my first GM, and and, and nobody else, uh, in my recollection, at the NHL in that particular time wore that. Or, you know, so those are those are many things. And then just the, you know, playing with some of those great Leaf players, like again, you know, Daryl Sittler and Lanny McDonald and Ronnie Ellis and Boria Salming and Ian Turnbull was there, and Mike Palmatier and, and uh, you know, some of those names that have endeared themselves to Toronto Maple Leaf fans for many years. And, um, you know, I, I, I had the good fortune to, you know, be mentored by some of those, uh, individuals who taught me a work ethic, who taught me, you know, how to be a pro, how to be a good pro and, and what to do. And, and so, you know, I'm forever grateful and I have some very, very good memories uh, of my time in Toronto. Paul Morris was certainly an iconic voice. And like you, I, I share the memories of him. Very simple calling of the goals and assists. We all hearken back. To those great days. Yeah. When you talk about mentoring, Laurie, in your rookie year, the legendary yeah. Ron Ellis was in his final year. You noticed he had a real peace in his life. He sat beside you in the dressing room, mm-hmm. and with his support, you decided to follow a faith-based lifestyle. Now, here's something very interesting. Although there might be a stereotype that a born-again Christian would be a pacifist and not interested mm-hmm. in the rough stuff, I would note that you, Laurie, are one of only 16 players in NHL history to have scored over 500 points and accumulated over 2,000 penalty minutes. I did the math, and over your career, that's a full day and a half spent in the sin bin. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, well, you, you, you know, here, here's here's how that uh, sort of materialized, Andrew, is, uh, you, you know, as we've kind of talked about earlier on, I thought... Uh, like as as a youngster, I I had a dream. Like probably, you know, many people who played hockey, and maybe yourself as well. If you played hockey, you may have had a dream to play in the NHL. And because I, I like Boston, my dad liked Boston, so and I never ever thought that that would become a reality. I never ever thought I'd be good enough. But it's just what you do as a kid. You're out there shooting. You're playing road hockey. We did lots of that with our friends. And and then again, I played on the outdoor ponds. I played in the indoor rinks and. You know, I, I seem to excel at it and stuff, but I never really thought, even as a junior player, you know, we had a really strong junior team. I played with Brian Kropp and Ray Ellison and Brad McCrimmon. We had a very, very good team, of course, lost in the Memorial Cup final. But it wasn't until my, my second year junior that I had heard, and of course, media is not what it was, you know, back in the day. Like what media is today was not like that back in, you know, 1970s, right? Uh, there wasn't TSN and Sportsnet and all that kind of stuff. I knew I played on a pretty good team with some pretty good line mates, but I didn't know, uh, you know, I'd be one of the top picks in, in, you know, in the NHL draft. It was a bit of a surprise to me, but my, you know, Alan Eagleson had told me that I was going to get drafted high and stuff. And so I, I had this, you know, th- this thought that if I could ever play in the NHL, then, you know, I would be content, happy. I would have everything that life had to offer. So now all of a sudden I get there, here I am, I'm playing, you know, uh, regularly going to all these cities and playing in all these iconic buildings that I've talked about, you know, Montreal, Chicago, Boston, uh, you know, the original six buildings and stuff and playing against these guys that I saw on television, you know, hockey players and individuals that you look up to. I, I, I thought, well, man, if I could ever do that, then I would really be happy. And so I was playing against all these players and playing in these buildings. And I, I just remember about three months into my NHL career, waking up one morning and thinking like, 
I have achieved all the goals that I had wanted to, you know, to, to make it to the NHL. I'm playing here now. I was actually playing on a line with uh, uh, Rocky Saganuk and John Anderson, and they called us the kid line. And we actually were, were playing quite well at the time. And so I, I just sort of felt, is this it? Like, this is all that there is to life. And so I sort of felt a little bit like there had to be more to life than this. And so fortunately, you know, I was 19 and Ron was uh, 35 years old. And I sat next to Ron and, and it was Boreas Salming at the end of the bench where, where we sat, Ron Ellis and then myself. And, and so I would see Ron. Ron was, you know, married. He was 35 years old. He had two kids. And I was, you know, 19 and single. And I used to think, man, he is so old. He is a fossil. Like, you know, because he's got two kids and he's married. And and it just goes to show you, you know, like when I got to be about my mid-20s, I used to think, I, I thought back to that. And I thought, wow, were you ever immature to think that 35 years old was a fossil? But I mean, that's just immaturity, right? And that's just, uh, that's the way things go. You know, you, you recognize then when I was a 30-year-old player, I knew what the it, the 18 and 19-year-olds coming into the league were thinking about me. So, because that's the way I thought about, you know, Ron Ellis. So, and Ron and I are dear friends today. So, so it's, it's really, it's really quite fun. But it was just that, this emptiness that I felt like playing in the NHL and made really good money. And yet I wasn't happy. I wasn't satisfied. And I saw Ron Ellis next to me and Ron always had this piece about him, whether he was scoring goals or whether he was doing well or whether he wasn't doing well, whether the team was in a slump. Ron was always steady and he always spoke highly of his wife, Jan, and he was very, uh, you know, sweet with her and everything. And I noticed all these things. And so, you know, this sort of feeling continued for quite some time. And I remember I I got the courage uh, uh, one morning in practice, uh, it was a non-game day and I, I was there early. I got changed in, from my clothes into, you know, my hockey gear and hockey underwear and, and Ronnie was there early. And I remember one day I just said to him, I said, Ron, you know, I just have to ask you like a weird question here. I've been watching you, you know, ever since I got here and you sit next to me. And I, I said, I've noticed something like different about you. And I said, it's not weird. It, it's good. You have this piece about you. I, I said, like, what makes you tick? Like, what's that all about? And, and he basically said, Andrew, he said, I'm a born again Christian and I try and use the Bible as a guide for my life. Now, Andrew, I never heard that terminology before as a 19 year old. I never heard someone articulate the fact that they're born again Christian. I didn't know what he was talking about because I come from a Catholic background and, and I considered myself a Christian because I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. Uh, and we used to, as a family, go to church on a regular basis. But I just never heard that terminology. Well, you know, this emptiness continued throughout the year. And and, and as, you know, towards the end of my first year, Hockey Ministries uh, happened to be who I work for now and have worked for for the past 30 years. We're conducting these non-denominational chapel programs across the hockey landscape. They just began that. And so as a result of that, Ron Ellis asked me one day uh, when the team was on the road if I'd like to come to a chapel program. And so I, I said, sure, uh, you know, when is it? And uh, it was in March of 1980. We were flying uh, right after we played in Toronto. We we took a, uh, a charter and we went to Quebec City and Ron invited, uh, like he did all the time, he invited, uh, you know, his uh, teammates come and he said, it's going to be in room, whatever, 516. And so anyways, I said to Ron, yeah, I, I'd like to come. And we, we got our keys down at the front desk when we got in and we went up to our rooms. And wouldn't you know what? My room was next door to Ronnie. So I said, because Ronnie had invited me to these chapels and I, I would have liked to have went, but I never went to one of them. And anyways, I went to the last one of the year and it was at this chapel program where Ronnie brought in Mel Stevens, who, uh, who was the head of uh, Teen Ranch Canada for years. Mel has since passed away. And uh, he brought Mel in and Mel opened up the Bible. Like we had about 10 or 12 of my teammates there in his room. It was uh, that the morning of uh, a game. And I went to that chapel program and, and Mel opened up the Bible. We opened in a word of prayer and uh, he started talking about what the Bible has to say about prophecy. Some things that that are predicted in the scriptures that will come true and some things that already had come true. And it was kind of like, 
wow, that's amazing. I had no idea. I didn't know anything of the Bible. Like, I thought the Bible was for the Catholic priest to read and to tell us what it had to say. I didn't think just a, a regular dude could read the Bible and understand it. And so, anyways, uh, after the uh, chapel program, uh, they it was about 20 minutes, and they, they said, if, if anyone's interested, come on back up in the room afterwards. And so, I, I was quite interested, and so I came back up in that same room after we had our pregame meal, and uh, Ron Ellis and, and Mel were there, and uh, I started asking them some more questions and s- sort of started asking them questions about what does it mean to be born again, or what does that look like, and you know what does what do you have to do? And, and I remember Mel Stevens stopped me and said, Lori, do you see any reason why you can't accept Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because... Like, as a Catholic growing up, I believed in, in who Jesus was. Uh, I believed that, uh, you know, he wasn't a fictitious person. It wasn't mythology, but there was a person, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, who actually lived and walked in this earth. And I, you know, I believed in what we celebrate, uh, you know, at Easter, that he he uh, died and, and he rose again for, for us. But, you know, the missing sort of piece was that, I knew I had done things that were wrong, and the Bible calls that sin. And it was just this understanding for the first time in my life that Jesus died for my sins. And so it was just that understanding that, yeah, that's uh, I have sinned, and, and uh, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that's what it means to be a, a, a born-again Christian or a Christ follower. And so I just said, like, what do you do? How do you join? <laughs> and they said, well, there's no magic formula. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, you know, ask God to forgive your sins, to come into your life and to make you a new person. And so I basically did that in a hotel room in Quebec city in March of, of 1980. And I have been a follower of Christ and, uh, ever since. And of course, you know, with what we do at hockey ministries, these are, are some things that we think are very valuable to people, not only in hockey, but in, in life in general, because we believe the Bible is very relevant today in issues from, you name it, from, you know, marriage to playing hockey and everything in between uh, the Bible speaks to. And so so that's why, uh, and it's helped us in our life. But more importantly, Andrew, I think what happened to me is, slowly for me, I started to have that same peace that Ron Ellis, that I saw that Ron Ellis had. I started to observe that in my life throughout the course of my career and, and throughout the difficulties that I had in playing with, uh, you know, playing with the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and with some of the challenges that were brought forth by Harold Bollard and all of that stuff too. Well, let's talk about some of those challenges because you had this major life transformation and after a solid rookie campaign, you did not do as well in your second and third season in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Team owner Harold Ballard had a theory that becoming a born-again Christian had, quote, given you too much religion and that this was somehow responsible for your less than yeah. performance. You were only 20 years old, and Ballard's views got huge media coverage. As you noted, Lori, media was very different. There was no social media, no internet. Everyone yeah. read the same three newspapers. How tough was having the team owner come down on you and your beliefs in such a public way? Yeah, Andrew, it was very difficult. Uh, and, and really how it shook down was uh, we were playing in New York, uh, Madison Square Gardens one night. And of course, again, I'm single. I'm, I am I was at that time, you know, I think uh, Joel had got traded with Lanny McDonald, had got traded to Colorado. And I think Rick Vibe was my roommate at the time. And and so anyways, uh, uh, after the game in, in New York, Madison Square Gardens, we chartered back to Toronto because we were uh, practicing the next day. And so so we go we go back home. We get home about 2.30 in the morning. And Daryl Settler, who was our captain at the time, and, and his first wife, Wendy, who unfortunately has since passed away from cancer, she left a note on the door when Daryl got home. Daryl, turn on the VCR because Wendy was watching the game and she was taping the game. So Daryl got home at 2.30 in the morning. Daryl turned on the VCR and he watched an interview between Dick Beddoes, who did a lot of the, uh, the regional broadcast, and Harold Ballard in between the second and third period. And Harold Ballard said to Dick Beddoes that he was going to trade Boschman or send him to the minors because he's got too much religion. And so 
at that particular time, Andrew, what was happening was, is I, as you articulated, I wasn't playing so well. And of course, now there was a lot of rumblings internally that, you know, Boschman's got too much religion is because he's, you know, that's why he's not playing well. And that had nothing to do with it. And so I go into practice the next morning and Daryl comes in and Daryl takes me into the washroom stalls and he said, Bosch, did you hear what happened last night? And I said, no, is everything all right with Wendy and the kids? And he said, yeah. And then he proceeded to tell me what was on that videotape. And he said, just get ready because he said, the media is going to want to talk to you after practice today. And sure enough, there was more media than there always there in Toronto. There was always a lot of media, even before, you know, TSN and Sportsnet. but, uh, there was even more. And again, after practice, sure enough, they brought it up. And I'm glad Daryl gave me a heads up because I, I would have been blindsided completely. And basically what I said, Andrew, back then is I said, I think it was Mr. Ballard's ignorance towards Christianity that he'd make such a statement that it, my poor play was associated with my, as he described it, my religion. Because if anything, it, what my faith had, had done is it helped me kind of become a more dedicated hockey player, to be a better teammate, to look after myself better, all those kinds of things that are positive. It's just that I wasn't playing that well. Uh, the year before I got into a fight with Robbie Fatorik, I gave him an uppercut and I cut my index finger and I got blood poisoning and um, I was out for three weeks. And I mean, that was a contributing factor. That's not, you know, the reason why, but it's just that as a first round pick and, and uh, for any team, uh, but especially a Canadian team, there's this expectation that, you know, you're you're going to have to produce. And I had a, a fairly good first year. And, and then to have that injury the second year, the third year, now they're saying, okay, well, Boschman's going to kind of round out into form. And I didn't to my liking or to theirs, but it had no uh, reference to my faith. But you can see how that connection was made. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just got so bad that... Uh, you know, that at one point I just had to ask, you know, towards the end of my third year there in Toronto, you know, I, I just asked them, you know, that I, I think I needed to be traded to, to move on because they didn't believe that I could come out of this sort of slump or, uh, that my faith really was impacting me. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so I asked to be traded, uh, you know, at the end of my third year there. Well, if I may ask about one step in between, because as crazy as this story is, it actually got crazier. In 1980, the Maple Leafs sent you to see a psychiatrist. They did. After practice one day, Andrew, uh, Mike Nikolic was the coach at the time, and Mike comes in and says, uh, you know, Laurie said, uh, we want you to go see it. I don't, I'll just use, uh, your, use your name. We want you to go see Dr. Applebaum at uh, Wesley Hospital. I said, who's Dr. Apple? Oh, he's our sports psychiatrist. Nobody had psychiatrists in 1980. <laughs> so I, I go to see to that one o'clock, uh, you know, meeting with the, with the doc. And we sat down and talked for about an hour and a half. And the crazy thing is, is two days later, Mike Nicolette didn't tell me about the report. How I found out about what the psychiatrist report was, is my dad worked at a place called Canadian Motors in Brandon and Mike Nicolet called my father and called him on the phone and said, uh, Joe, this is uh, Mike Nicolet, Toronto Bay Police. And of course my dad knew who Mike Nicolet was and said, uh, we sent your son, we sent Lori to a psychiatrist a couple of days ago and the psychiatrist report came back and the psychiatrist said he's brainwashed. Is there anything you and Dora can do about it? Well, my mom and dad called me that night, told me the story they were both in tears and it was just kind of like my parents were just like beside themselves. They thought I joined a cult. They thought I'd like lost my mind and they knew I hadn't, but they knew that, that I had become a follower of Christ. They knew that my life had changed in a positive manner and uh, they just couldn't understand why, you know, the Toronto Maple Police would, uh, you know, would send me to a psychiatrist. And then the psychiatrist said that I was brainwashed and so that's really Andrew the reason why I asked to be traded because it became an untenable situation for me there in Toronto playing for the Leafs and then unfortunately the Leafs kind of and and not because I left but they just kind of imploded uh in the next few years and and uh they just made all kinds of uh 
you know, poor moves and they were down near the bottom and, and, you know, so much so that they, they were able to get Wendell Clark, I think is the number one pick. I don't know what year that was, but, uh, you know, and that seemed to, you know, uh, change stuff. And of course, Wendell was, was a fantastic uh, make belief for, you know, for his tenure during his time in Toronto. But, uh, but yeah, it just became, became very difficult just all because of, you, you know, the fact that the hockey club ha- was determined and, and they were pretty certain that, uh, that my faith or, you know, my religion, as they said, really impacted me as a hockey player. So, you know, when I got traded to Edmonton and, and then, you know, I was fortunate, you know, after those three years in Toronto to play another 11 years. So I, I was quite fortunate to, to have a 14 year career and, um, and, and things really turned out better for me when I, when I left Toronto, unfortunately. Well, it certainly did turn out well for Laurie Boschman in the end. When you had asked Leafs general manager and friend of this podcast, Jerry McNamara, to trade you, your agents, Alan Eagleson and Bill Waters, had reported back to you that it was tough to find a new team. Nobody wanted a religious zealot. You That's did, right. however, get traded to the Edmonton Oilers, where you played with a really stellar cast, led by an up-and-coming youngster with the unique jersey number of 99. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, it was a thrill to, to be able to play with Wayne and, of course, Mark Bessie, Glenn Anderson, Paul Coffey, Grant Shear, Yari Curry. I, I mean, what is that, about six Hall of Famers? And it wasn't so fun when I got traded from the Oilers to the Jets because we were in the Smite division. And from 83 to 90, playing in that smite division, those seven years, the Stanley Cup champion came out of that division six out of those seven years. Edmonton won five cups. Calgary won one in between. And I think Montreal won uh, one in, in Patrick Waugh's rookie year. So we could beat Calgary but in Los Angeles, but we just could not beat the Oilers. We could not get past the Oilers. And, and they were a formidable foe. They were just, you know, it was very, very frustrating because one time we were up 3-1 on them and they came back and, you know, so we could contain maybe Gretzky, we could mitigate Messi a little bit, but then all of a sudden Grant Fear would stand in his head for 55 saves and, and you know, they, they beat us 5-4. You know, or then Gretzky would, you know, would score four goals or, or two goals and three assists. So there was always somebody, like they had so many weapons that could hurt you, you know, from Anderson to Curry to Messi to to Caulfield and defense and Charlie Huddy did a great job back there. So they, it, we just could not beat them, which was very frustrating in a seven game series. If you're enjoying this Toronto legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got chef Susur Lee, body breaks, Hal Johnson, comedian, Paul Reiser, Michael pinball Clemens, our UN ambassador, Bob Ray, Maple Leafs captain, Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. So you're with Edmonton in 82. You were then traded yep. to the Winnipeg Jets the following March of 83. Your confidence was unfortunately at a real low at this point. How did Jets GM John Ferguson Sr., not Jr., get yep. a boost? by personally meeting you upon your arrival at the Winnipeg airport. Yeah, it was just uh, unheard of. Like, uh, I, I still haven't heard of anything like that. John Ferguson was the person, when he traded for me, he picked me up at the airport in, in Winnipeg, and he brought me to the hotel, and he said, listen, Laurie, he said, I don't care about anything that happened in Toronto with your religion, with your faith. He said, I'm good with all that. He said, I just want you to play hockey the way you did back in Brandon. And he said, that's why I made the trade for you. And really, along with playing with, I, I got a chance to play with Scott O'Neill, who's an assistant coach now with Winnipeg Jets, and Lucy and Demblois. And, you know, we ended up being the third line there behind, uh, you know, Thomas Steen was our second line center. And, of course, Dale Howard chucked the top line center along with Paul McLean and, and Brian Mullen. We just sort of hit it off and, and took off. And my career sort of took a, a, a real upward trajectory uh, w- when I got to Winnipeg, but uh, I-, I give a lot of credit to John Ferguson because he was such a big supporter of mine, and and it just didn't bother him, and, and he did did take a chance on me. And I think sometimes, Andrew, I-, I think sometimes with hockey players, even today, you know, as I watch the game, I love watching the game. It's so fast, and the players are good. Sometimes a player, you know, maybe just a change of scenery, or sometimes even a change of coach, 
I think what's so interesting now is that if you're a general manager or coach, you have to have so much patience with players, so much patience with young people, because sometimes those players, they just need that opportunity and then a little bit of confidence. And then they're, then they're on their way. Then these are the kind of players that they're going to be. Sometimes it does not work out that way. And those players do not turn into the kind of players that you think or the scouts thought or whatever that uh, they projected when they got drafted. Cause that ha- happens all the time. If you look at the first round, just even in the last 10 years, just look through the top 30 to 32 prospects, right? Because now there's 32 teams in the NHL. Look at those prospects and see how many of those names that were deemed to be the top 30 to 32 pro- prospects in the world and see how many names you don't recognize because they didn't make. And at the time they got drafted, they were deemed to be the elite prospects or the, or the individuals that they thought could really, you know, add something to their hockey club. So uh, it doesn't always work out, but oftentimes it does. And, and, and like sometimes like, you know, for example, here in Ottawa with the Ottawa Senators, I think Daniel Alfredson was a sixth round pick and uh, turned into a, a Hall of Famer, uh, you, you know, and their first pick, uh, uh, Alexander Day, maybe didn't turn into the, to the Mario Lemieux kind of player that they thought he would. And that that's what I think would be so tough in, in the game today and for the scouting that do scouting for a living. But, you know, just getting back to myself, but in my case, it seemed like getting to Winnipeg and and John Ferguson just, you know, just saying, we just want you to play hockey. And that was towards the end of my third, I think that was my fourth year. And and then the next year I just took off. And so I'm I'm just grateful to John and I'm grateful, you know, to uh, to the Lord that I was able to uh, play, you know, and, and I just feel very fortunate that for 14 years I was able to do that. At the, at the highest level. Now you had seven very successful seasons, as you note, in the River City of Winnipeg. And then you played two seasons for your only U.S.-based team, the New Jersey Devils. You were playing for former Leafs GM, Lou Lamorello. What was that experience like? And did you have to get rid of your mustache? <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't recall if Lou asked me to get rid of my mustache, but he uh, certainly didn't like facial hair. That's for sure. I, I think what was happening at that time, like uh, there was a period of time during the 80s that mustaches were kind of in around the NHL and I did have one, but I don't think, uh, I don't recall that anyways, but uh, Lou did not like facial hair, that's for sure. I, I do recall that, but I, I really like uh, Lou Lamorello. Lou treated uh, me very well. My wife and I loved uh, New Jersey and Andrew, we loved it because the four other teams that I played on were Canadian teams you know, Toronto, Edmonton, Winnipeg, and of course here in Ottawa. And the seven NHL Canadian teams, people are so passionate about hockey and it's great. You know, you love that. There's nothing better than playing in a Canadian city. But it was my first experience playing in a New York, in a uh, U.S. city and in in particular New Jersey where hockey was like on the seventh page. So after hockey games, Outside of like the Brendan Byrne Arena, which is the old arena, they're at the Prudential Center now, downtown Newark, but the old arena uh, that they used to play at, you know, in the Meadowlands, once you got outside of that bubble, nobody knew who you were. And it was kind of nice just to kind of blend in and just be a regular citizen. And we could go for, you know, dinner. Nobody knew who you were. We could do all kinds of things, go, go shopping. And, uh, and, and that was kind of, uh, kind of a nice change. Lori, how then do you end up in Ottawa for the 1992-93 season, this being the Senators' first year as an okay. expansion team along with the Tampa Bay Lightning? So, Andrew, I was my own agent at that particular time. About halfway through my career, I, I handled uh, three of my contracts. And so when we finished uh, in, um, you know, I guess it'd be the uh, 91 uh, season, you know, there was expansion Tampa, uh, both Tampa and um Ottawa were coming in. And so two weeks before my wife and I were heading back to Winnipeg, that was where our summer home was from New Jersey. Uh, Lou brought me in and, and said, Lori, we're going to leave you unprotected in the, you know, in the expansion draft. And, uh, you know, we just wanted to, to let you know that. And he said, I've talked to Phil Esposito and to Mel Bridgman, who were the GMs of both those teams at the time. And he said, I, I don't think, I think you're going to be fine. Like we want to ha- have you come back here you know, we don't want to lose you, but we have to leave so many players unprotected. So I said, yeah, no problem, Lou. So 
the expansion draft had happened on the very day that my wife and I and our three kids were flying back from New Jersey to Winnipeg. So anyway, our flight went Newark to Minneapolis and then Minneapolis to Winnipeg. And so anyways, the draft had taken place while we were in the air and we landed in Minnesota. And of course, this is before cell phones. And uh, so anyways, I, I get on the payphone while my wife and the three kids are waiting at gate, whatever, gate 10, uh, you know, to board the, the Northwest Orient flight uh, to Winnipeg. And I, I called my parents, couldn't get a hold of them. I called another buddy, couldn't get a hold of them. I, I got a hold of one friend and said, hey, I'll use your name, Andrew. I'll say, hey, Andrew, uh, did you happen to hear the expansion draft today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, did you hear my name? No, no, Bosh, I didn't hear you. Oh, okay, great. Uh, okay, no problem. Well, Andrew, I'll see you in a few days. You know, just flying back. Okay, thanks, Bosh. So, see ya. So, anyways, I get back in line, tell my wife, yeah, yeah, we're going back to New Jersey. So, anyways, I we arrive in Winnipeg, and we get, you know, we have all kinds of stuff because we have babies, we have strollers, we have about three of these carts we're pushing through, and we have the, you know, the uh, custom certificate. And anyways, we push it through, we get and hand the customs certificate to the gentleman at the end there. And he says, oh, Mr. Boschman, you're back home for the summer and stuff. What would you think about getting picked by the expansion Ottawa Senators? Just was like, what? And that was the first I heard about it. I looked back to my wife who was right behind me, and we just were like, oh, no. We walked through the gates, and our good friends and former teammate Ray Newfeld and his wife Dawn were there, and Dick and Shirley Stevens were there to pick us up. And they said, did you hear the news? And we said, 15 seconds ago, we heard. And so, you know, to get picked by the expansion Ottawa Senators was not exactly what we were thinking was going to happen because of, you know, my meeting two weeks prior uh, with um, with Lou Lamorello. But I guess what happened is John Ferguson was an associate GM to Mel Bridgman, and I guess he pushed real hard to, to take me. And uh, and so anyways, uh, that's how I ended up in uh, in Ottawa. And uh, it was a very difficult first year. We only won 10 or 11 games. And it was that was the hardest of my 14-year career. But yet, we, we love the community here. It's a great city to live and, and all of that kind of stuff. But professionally, it, it was extremely difficult. Well, you can talk, though, about the honor of being named the first captain in Ottawa Senators franchise history. Yeah, I mean, that's the, it is something that, uh, you, you, you know, it, it's an honor anytime you, you get to wear a letter, whether it's your captain or an, an associate assistant captain. And I think that a lot of times that means, you know, you're either, you know, an older player or there's some leadership qualities that, uh, you know, that the, the coaches or general managers see. So, yeah, so that was an honor, but I have to say it was also very, very difficult. We had a good group of guys and we weren't a, at each other uh you know too much but we just didn't have the talent and that included you know myself and included I was uh, you know an older player at the time and I was being used as a defensive forward as a defensive center iceman you know my last couple years in New Jersey and so collectively I think it, it, it was just a very difficult time I mean people in in the Ottawa community they were just glad that the NHL was uh was was back uh you know because they they did have an nhl team way back in the early 1900s and they won like 11 stanley cups but uh, obviously people supported us and supported the team and oftentimes they were you know big montreal fans toronto fans boston fans chicago fans those kinds of things and now you've got the younger generation andrew like kids my age who are sens fans and then you've had many many people have you know, changed allegiances, if you would. Uh, and, and they, you know, used to be fans of this team and now they're fans of the Senators. Well, Laurie, I'm not trying to give you the business, but I do have to report that that very first Ottawa Senators season, 92-93, was a rough ride. You tied four games, won 10 games, lost 70 games. You only won a single road game that entire season. But I do want to ask you about a great memory and that was the very first game in Saturday's franchise history. This was the opening night when you defeated the eventual Stanley Cup champion Montreal Canadiens 5-3 in front of a capacity crowd of 10,500. Yes, a capacity crowd of only 10,500 at the old Ottawa Civic Center. What do you remember about that game? 
Well, just the excitement, of course, uh, in the community for you know this inaugural team to to kick off their season. And uh, I remember after that game, you know, the next day reading the headlines, maybe Rome was built in a day. I thought that was a great headline. You know, uh, I really thought it was very good. But but again, the fact that we only won ten games, and of course, it was an eighty-four game schedule back then. You know, for a few years there, we played 84 games and uh, it was just a, it was just a painful year, uh, especially for a veteran player. Like there were some veteran players like Brad Shaw and, and Brad Marsh and Doug Smale and, and, and some of us. And, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a very difficult professional professionally, but there was tremendous amount of excitement in the in the Ottawa community. And uh, and, and that's what I remember. I do want to ask you, Laurie, I'm going to test your memory really hard here. There's a bit of yep. franchise first game trivia that I think is pretty interesting. Do you remember yep. who sang the national anthem for that opening Ottawa Senators game? Yeah, I do. Um, it's uh, Alanis Morissette. Yeah, because they made such a big deal out of that and, and, and everything. Like after she, you know, she's uh, she's turned out to be quite a, you know, quite a, quite a singer and stuff like that. But I, I wouldn't have known that obviously at the time, right? But uh, a- afterwards, yeah, they talked about that quite a bit. Your memory is sharp as a knife. It was sung by a relatively unknown 18-year-old singer, and this was a full three years before the release of Jagged Little Pill. Yes, indeed. Ottawa's own Alanis Morissette. Now, Laurie, after that one season in Ottawa, you finished your hockey career overseas, playing seven weeks in Fife, England, in the British Hockey League, Of course, today, European hockey is huge and professionally run at the same level we experience here in North America. But playing in England in the early 90s must have been a very unique experience. Yeah, it was. And, and, you know, it's something I hadn't anticipated. A a former teammate of mine, a friend, Doug Smale, was over there. And one of their imports had got hurt just before playoffs. And so Doug called me. I'd been retired for a few years already and working with Hockey Ministries and he said, uh, Bosch, uh, the owner has asked me to find a player because we need someone for playoffs. And, and I said, well, Dougie, I haven't played hockey in two years. Like, I'm not even playing rec hockey. You know, hockey was finished, and I wasn't that interested in playing any rec hockey or anything. And so anyways, uh, he said, Bosch, he said, it's it's not that good. You could still come and play. And so long and short of it, I talked to my boss and good friend Don Lismer at HMI, and he said, yeah, go ahead. And so I went over there, you know, for you know, about a, a month and a half and they gave me a place and a car and my wife and three kids came over uh, and uh, I think Bob Ray was the premier of uh, Ontario then and they had two weeks for Ray Days for kids at uh, the March break. So my wife came over with the kids for a couple of weeks. And so, yeah, so it was a good experience. Uh, you know, the hockey wasn't that stellar back then, but but I understand the quality is quite a bit in the British Ice Hockey Association today. Is, is quite a bit, but it was a great experience. It was neat to see it, that part of the world and uh, to, to play in Scotland and, and, and England yeah, it was, was, was really neat. Well, as you know, today, a lot more like what we're used to, but back then, very different. You have to please just share the stories of the unique ice markings and protective netting. Yeah, well, it's, it's crazy because in Kirkcaldy, we're in Fife, it's in Scotland, and of course, we played an Olympic-sized rink, but it was really a curling rink. You know, they used it for curling, so they kept the the rings in and just they covered up the hack, you know, where you put your feet to to throw the rocks. And instead of having plexiglass, they had, like, webbing. So people couldn't stand right close to that because if you shot it high and missed the net, it would go off the web and, and then spring back. And, and come shooting back. And if you're too close, it would hit you in the head. So so the locals knew that, but I'd never experienced anything like that before. And it was kind of like, you know, coming from the NHL to that, it was kind of like, oh boy, this is interesting. So it, it was it was very good though. The people were very friendly. The people, you know, they sing their songs just like they do with the football there, like soccer in, in England. You know, they have different songs and they, they have the different scarves and the colors and and, and, and of course, to a smaller degree, but it's uh, it's quite interesting. They're very passionate. They have a small group that's very passionate about their hockey over there. So it was a great experience. I really, I'm really glad that I did that. It was a fun, sort of fun way to finish off, uh, you know, playing hockey. It was uh, it was interesting. 
Now, Lori, as we close up, I do want to ask about Alan Eagleson, who served as both your agent and as the head of the Players Union. I think it's an understatement to say that he was controversial. He is both loved yep. and loathed by former NHLers. How was your experience with the man known as the Eagle or simply Uncle Al? You know, Al, Al was my was my agent for a short period of time. There was another individual by the name of Bill Waters who is a, his associate. And uh, I went with uh, Bill Waters and, and Bill handled my stuff for, for a number of years. And um, of course, my dealings with, with Al were professional and that, but it's just very unfortunate because all of the stuff that came out about Al and the dual roles that he played and, and all of those kinds of things, it really was unfortunate because it, it did suppress salaries at, 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 you know, at, at, at that particular time for a number of years. And, and that was very unfortunate. And of course he uh, ended up, you know, you, you know, going to jail because of the stuff that he did that was uncovered. But, uh, you, you know, it's just unfortunate those kinds of things, uh, you know, took place in that. And uh, yeah, there's, depends who you talk to. There's a lot of people that have, uh, some very strong feelings towards Al and stuff. And uh, there's some, you know, very good things that he did on behalf of hockey. And unfortunately, I, I, I think he let his position and, and money, like like some people at times will do, they let that uh, get the best of them and you make compromises in your life and, and, uh, and to the detriment of a lot of other people. And he hurt a lot of people. And, uh, and that's never a good thing. So uh, it's just a, very unfortunate. Just very unfortunate, that whole situation. And I think back in the day, Al kind of, uh, by by himself representing general managers, by representing the Players Association and then players, he, you know, artificially kept salaries down, uh, you know, which, which was not good. And in fact, during the period of time that, uh, you know, when Al was being, uh, taken to court, I, I was contacted by lawyers from the NHL because he was my agent and there was evidence apparently that they were asking me to appear before the grand jury that they were having in Boston because they found some evidence that Alan Eagleson and the Winnipeg Jets had colluded on my salary to keep it at a certain level. Well, of course, what would I know about stuff like that? So I said, well, look, you know, of course, I don't know anything like that, but whatever you want, I'll I'll, I'll provide for you and all that kind of stuff. And so when I was with Ottawa, we were playing Boston sometime in January of 93. And they asked me to, you know, if I would appear before the grand jury. And of course, the NHL would have their lawyer there with me and all that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, yeah, of course. And I'll bring whatever you want. I'll send you whatever you're asking for. And then as they got going on that investigation more from September to January, they found out that there was much bigger fish to fry than Alan Eagleson colluding on Lori Boschman's contract with the Winnipeg Jets. And so, uh, so they said, uh, you know, Lori, don't, don't bother coming because we've got a whole bunch of other stuff we're taking them, you know, uh, to court on. So, you know, those kinds of things are disappointing to hear, but you, you know, you know, there's nothing you can do about it, right? It's, it's, uh, there's been a change, you know, as far as the players association, Al got, got out of there and, and they got, uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was Bob Goodenow who came in next, but, uh, and, and things have been kind of salaries have been going up and up, but you know, all in all the game of hockey is healthy and that's the main thing. The very different era, some crazy times and great points. There's no doubt today hockey is the healthiest it's ever been. So again, as part of the NHL's all-star weekend in Toronto, everyone is welcome to attend the all-star breakfast hosted by hockey ministries international on Saturday, February 3rd at the historic Fairmount Royal York hotel. Full details can be found at hockeyministries.org, And there is a link in this episode's show notes. Lori, it has been absolutely wonderful meeting you catching up on all your hockey experiences. I hope you have a fantastic all-star weekend when you return to Toronto. Excellent. Well, thanks, uh, Andrew. It's been a nice chat with you. It has been my pleasure to have you. And to the listeners, on behalf of Lori Boschman, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.
looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.